Jason Ellison is an old man at 15 years of age. Already he has lived beyond the normal life expectancy of one suffering from progeria. Progeria is a disease that wildly accelerates some aspects of the aging process. Jason's story is told in the current issue of Life magazine. His appearance is that of a very old and frail man. He is just four feet tall and weighs 41 pounds. He looks quite different, even odd. In fact, there are only 15 children in the whole world that look like Jason does. Like most progerians, Jason is highly intelligent. In a recent school essay, he wrote these words. When I look in the mirror, I see a person like no other persons around me. I see someone who is bald, a cricked nose, no front teeth, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, and pointed ears. Someone who has crooked legs, and a very tiny body for his age. I want people to look at me and see past my looks and see who I really am. Not a freak, but a wonderful human being who loves life and his fellow man. I think this is who I am. Although my looks are so different, I did not choose to look the way I do or to have a life that could be over tomorrow. I'm just here to love life, he wrote. And though he is here to love life, he has experienced rejection in these 15 years of life. He is surrounded by a loving family. Joe, his 10-year-old brother, says, People make fun of Jason. They call him things like alien, Martian, Skinhead. Joe went on to describe how he fought people who called Jason those things. The article in Life magazine relates how, on one occasion, Jason calmly stared at an adult store manager who had looked up and seen Jason before him and began shrieking, It's a monster! It's a monster! Perhaps the most painful experience that a human being can endure is that of rejection. To be refused by someone who is meaningful to us in our lives. Whether rejection comes from a parent or a peer, an employer or an employee, a sibling or a spouse, when it strikes, it tears at the delicate fabric of one's esteem. And it rips apart one's ideas about oneself, one's worth, one's meaning, one's positive contribution to the world. Rejection is especially hard when it comes to a child. A child that cannot understand or defend itself. 
I suppose all of us have at some time in our childhood experienced rejection. I remember when I was in the first grade, I went to a small country school in Kansas. And another small country school came to play us in a game of softball. I think that at that time there were 18 of us in the whole school, scattered over eight grades. And as they began to to choose up the teams, I was one of the last one picks, picked. And I remember how I felt at that moment, that I wasn't good enough to play. Now, I was a first grader, but first graders don't understand things like that. And to this day, I do not like to play ball because of that experience. But a more difficult time for me personally was when I was an older child, about 11. My father had died three years before, and the next man in our family that meant something to me was my grandfather. But my grandfather rejected me. He wouldn't talk to me more than just a few words when he had to. Now, he was a quiet sort of a person anyway. But I remember how painful it was to me to be rejected by the one man in my family that should have loved me at that point. I can't blame him for that because I think, frankly, that he was so deeply hurt over my father's death that he withdrew into himself. Probably every person in this auditorium could come up here this morning, if given the opportunity, and could share some experience of rejection in his or her life. Jesus Christ experienced the depths of being forsaken and rejected. We turn to our scripture today in Psalm 22, and we find a prophetic word regarding that experience of our Lord. In fact, he quoted from the first verse of Psalm 22 when he was on his cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? More than any other person, because of his keen sensitivity, unaffected by personal sin, he knew the acute painfulness of being rejected and forsaken. He was rejected by his own family, who did not believe on him. Ultimately, he was rejected by the multitudes, and finally forsaken by his own disciples. Then on the cross, he was forsaken by his God. This messianic psalm prophesies of the rejection, suffering, and death of Christ in verses 1 through 21. And then in the second part of the psalm, verses 22 through 31, it speaks of Christ's deliverance and victory. In the first part of the psalm, we have crucifixion. And as we'll see this morning as we read some of the verses, it's graphically depicted a thousand years before it happened. In the last part of the psalm, we have resurrection. In the first part of the psalm, pain and death. In the last part, praise and deliverance. In the first part, Messiah's rejection. In the last part, Messiah's reign. 
The lesson that I see in Psalm 22 that I'd like to apply to our lives today is this. Overriding the sharp pain of rejection comes the sure promise of God that he will never forsake his own. As we think about this, I'd like for us first to look at the complaint of the one who is forsaken and then the conviction that he likewise had. His complaint. The complaint is very clear in verses 1 and 2. It is that God is silent. He goes on to say in verse 1, Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. This prophetically speaks of the Lord Jesus. By day, by night, during the daylight, the nighttime of the cross, that supernatural darkness that came upon it, he cried out, and God was, as it were, silent to him. But notice that three times he calls God, my God. Although God is silent, he does not throw over his faith or his confidence in God. He says, my God, my God, my God. And yet his God appears, appears to reject him and seems, and seems not to respond to his cries. Does God ever seem that way to you in the pain that you're going through? Can you identify with the psalmist in his complaint? God is silent. And I cry out and I groan and my deliverance is far away. He not only complains that God is silent, but in verses 6 through 8 he complains that man is scornful of him. I am a worm, he says, and not a man. I am a worm is perhaps the forgotten I am of Jesus. I am a worm, not a man. The other day I was doing some digging in order to plant some shrubs. And as I did, I uncovered a worm. And in light of this text that I knew I was going to be preaching today, I picked up that worm and looked at it closely. I think my spade had missed him. He looked rather whole. But I got down real close to him in my palm and I looked at him. And then I looked over the worm to the world around. Have you ever looked at the world from the perspective of a worm? Everything is overwhelming to a worm. And what the psalmist David is saying about his experience, but which is fully uh, fulfilled in Christ, is that through this experience of rejection and being forsaken, he had utterly lost a sense of self-worth. He recognized himself as frail and helpless, just like a worm. He says, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip, which is roughly a way of saying they stick out the tongue at me. They wag the head back and forth saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. 
Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Words of mockery and scorn in verse 8 from man. The ridicule and derision that are recorded here are not uncommon experiences to the godly person. Jesus heard them at the cross. In fact, this, this text is almost fulfilled verbatim in Matthew chapter 28 by those who stood around his cross as they scorned him. Saying, let him come down from the cross. He says that God is his father. Let God deliver him. If he's a son of God, come on down. So he knew the scorn of men. And so does any person who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus. And usually, the point of scorn is the faith of the godly man. <laughs> you say you're a Christian and God treats you like that? So the complaint of the psalmist who is forsaken is that God is silent to me and man is scornful. There's a third complaint, verses eight, or 11 through 18. He complains that his enemy is strong. He compares his enemies to bulls, vicious bulls, strong bulls that have encircled him. He says they open wide their mouths. They are like a lion that is ravening and roaring, ready to devour him. In verse 16, he compares those around him to dogs, scavengers, who are out hunting for him. And so he complains that his enemies are strong and they encircle him, ready to tear him to pieces and destroy him. Do you see how this applies to Jesus? Can you see the scene at the cross from his perspective as he hangs there suffering in pain and looks down at the circle of people around him, mocking, scorning, deriding him, those who are, as it says in verse 18, dividing his garments, casting lots for his clothing. You see how that was fulfilled in Christ? Notice that he says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. Jesus said, I thirst. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Thou dost lay me in the dust of death. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look at me. They stare at me. David wrote these words, remember, in his lifetime. But they were fulfilled in the son of David, our Lord, as he hung at the cross. And in that position of crucifixion with its agony, his body stretched out, in torture, unable to get his breath, the irregular rhythm of his heart, the profuse sweating, the thirst that would come to him, the piercing of his hands and his feet before the Jews knew anything about crucifixion. That was a torture of the Romans. The Romans were not even on the scene when David wrote these words. 
how prophetically the Holy Spirit causes David to write. Jesus is the forsaken one who sees his enemy as strong, and yet any of us who have been through the experience of rejection can identify with some of these words. For the one who is forsaken, everything seems to be pathetic. All is lost. There is no hope for him. So it seems. But in the last part of the psalm, the whole tenor, the whole theme of the psalm changes. We come now to the conviction of the one who is forsaken. His conviction. We have seen his complaint as it is expressed. But now let's look at his conviction in the midst of his complaint. There are three matters of conviction that he has. The first one is what God is like. Notice that even as he cries out in verse 1, My God, why have you forsaken me? He answers his own question in verse 3, Thou art holy. His first conviction about God is that God is holy. And Messiah knew as he hung upon the cross that the reason that God turned his back on his son was because his son had become sin as he bore your sin and mine in our place to die for it. Thou art holy, Messiah says. His hope is in God. A God who is holy, a God who is exempt from all of the shortcomings of man. Are you complaining at God today? Perhaps you haven't spoken it, but are those feelings bubbling within you because of being forsaken? Remember that God is holy, my friend. God is exempt from all of the shortcomings that plague you and me. He is different than we are. He is holy. Be careful of complaining against him. God wants our honest feelings to be expressed. But as we express them, we must do so with a certain reverence and fear of God. For he is holy. And then in verses 4 and 5, we learn that he has a conviction that God is faithful. In thee our fathers trusted, they trusted, thou didst deliver them. To thee they cried out and were delivered. In thee they trusted and were not disappointed. The psalmist looks to the past and he sees that in the past the people of God seemed trapped also. In the past they had been encircled, as it were, by those who were opposed to them. And yet God knew that situation. He delivered them. We think of Egypt immediately. In their slavery, they cried out to their God. And God sent Moses. And then they were trapped at the Red Sea. The mountains on one side, the sea on the other, the Egyptian army coming at them. Trapped. And they cried out to God and Moses lifted the rod as God told him to and the waters parted. God intervened. God is faithful. That was his conviction. And there's a third conviction he had about God found in verses 9 and 10 that God is omniscient. God knows everything. God even knew the psalmist in his infancy. Thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breasts Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. 
He says, God, you have known me from the time that I was an infant and you know my present plight. That's the point. He had convictions, you see. The first area of conviction was what God is like. God is holy. God is faithful. And God is omniscient. God knows what I'm going through. That's true with you too, friend. And the second matter of conviction was what God will do. We see this, for example, in verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. But then he says in verse 19, be, But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, and from the horns of the wild oxen thou dost answer me. His conviction is what God will do. God will help him. God will not fail him. Why? Because God knows him. God knows him. Not just that God is aware of him, but God knows him. There is a relationship between this psalmist and his God. And then he is convicted, thirdly, about what God deserves. In light of the fact of what God is like and what God will do for him in helping him and assisting him, he has an area of conviction dealing with what God deserves, and basically it's worship. He says, God deserves my worship. You will find the term praise used in this psalm from verses 22 on some four times. Worship is used twice. Fear is used twice. Also, the word glorify or stand in awe or pay vows or bow before. All of these phrases deal with worship. What does God deserve? Worship. He says, I will worship God. I will tell of thy name to my brethren, says Messiah, verse 22. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise thee. The writer of Hebrews says that this verse is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus and his proclamation to the church that he is raised from the dead, that he lives evermore to save those that will come to God by him. I will tell of thy name to my brethren. What a wonderful way for Messiah to speak of us. And he does. He calls us his family. The psalmist says, I will worship God and others will join in. Verse 23, he invites those who fear the Lord to praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him, stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel. What does God deserve? God deserves worship. God deserves worship because he has heard the cry of his people. Look at verse 24. He invites others to worship, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him for help, he heard. What wonderful words. God heard. There are some of you this morning that are going through excruciating pain of rejection. You have been forsaken by others. And you sense that even God has forsaken you and you cry out and God is silent and others seem to turn their backs on you. And your circumstances are strong against you. 
and you feel like crawling in a hole and pulling it over the top of you, where's your conviction this morning, child of God? What is God like? Remember that God is faithful, that God is holy. He is not like man. He's different than us. And God knows what you're going through. And God hears. And because he hears your cry, the proper response, even in the midst of your pain, is worship. Worship God. Bow before him. Reverence him. Trust him. Worship him because he's heard and he hears. God deserves worship from all people, says the psalmist. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before thee. The psalmist is writing again prophetically, and there is a day coming when all of the earth will worship before our Savior. It doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved someday. This is not a proclamation of universal salvation. But the point is that people from every nation will turn to the Lord. From every race, every tribe, every tongue, there will be those who will worship Messiah. In every nation, he says, the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over all the nations. People in every condition, he says, the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. And all those who go down to the dust, that's the opposite of prosperity, those going to death. He says, all will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. He says that the Lord is to be worshipped not only by all peoples, but for all time. Verses 30 and 31, posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. You and I are part of that generation that's spoken of here. And yet if the Lord tarries, there will be generations after us that need to hear the message of Messiah's rejection, but also his resurrection. His death and pain for our sin, but his resurrection from the dead that we might be saved through him. You and I who are alive on this earth today, should worship him and invite others to worship him as well for all time, for he alone is worthy. Can you worship him today where you are in your circumstances? You say, I'm not sure if I can. Maybe the better question is, will you worship him? For you see, worship comes not just when we feel like it, but when we choose to worship despite how we feel. Just three quick closing observations. One is this, that being forsaken is a universal human experience. There is no one who escapes from even many episodes in life of being forsaken for one reason or another. How wonderful then to have a God who has promised us, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
Someone says, yes, but he forsook Jesus. He forsook Jesus that he might never forsake you. And he has promised that he would never leave you. That he will never disown you in any respect. No, not ever. A second observation I make is that when forsaken, the child of God can commit his feelings to a high priest who can fully sympathize. The writer of Hebrews again reminds us of this truth when he writes as he does in the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Do you understand that today, friend, there sits on the throne of grace in heaven one who has experienced the depths of the pain that you know? And since we're talking about rejection today, understand that he knows what it means to be rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He not only knows what it's like because he's God and knows everything, he knows because he's been here and he has experienced it. So he understands the hot tears that flow down your cheeks. And he's able to identify with those feelings that conflict within you and the confusion that comes to your mind because of what you're passing through. He knows. And because he is the God of all comfort, he is able to give you grace and comfort in all of your tribulation. Remember this too, that the experiences of rejection that you're going through are tests for you. To determine and to prove the foundation of your life. The psalmist wrote here, in the midst of his rejection experience, whatever it was, that God was still his God. There's a third observation that I make, and that is that the pain of rejection sensitizes us to the hurt of others. It's very easy to say, I know just how you feel, isn't it? But the fact is that we don't know just how somebody else feels until we've been in their moccasins. Until we've walked that mile where they've been. When you and I have gone through the experience of being forsaken by someone... It sensitizes us to others who are going through or will go through similar experiences. And we then, because we have had comfort from God, are able to share that comfort with them. We then become God's channels, if you please, of his comfort to others. So that then we can say, I know how you feel. And it communicates because we've been there. And we can quote that verse of Scripture that from the tongue of some would sound trite. But because that Scripture has been our strength in a similar experience, it comes through with power to that other person. And we can put the arm around them 
and maybe say nothing. But there's that sense of empathy because we have truly been there. Remember that the pain you're going through is preparation. Yeah, it hurts. No, I can't say that that God caused that to happen to you. But I can say God allowed it. Because whatever the situation is, God is bigger than the situation. And he's allowed you to go through that to prepare you for something he has for you in the future. You hang on to this and never forget it. God never wastes a single experience in your life. Not one. And that experience you're passing through now, God has shaped and fashioned and planned so that he might prepare you for some greater work. And so in the midst of your rejection and your being forsaken, worship him. He's faithful. He knows. He's heard. And in ways that maybe now you can't tell, He's there. And he's your God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, how grateful we are today for your word, which speaks to us right where we're living. And there are a number of people listening in this congregation this morning that I know are going through this experience of being rejected. And there are others undoubtedly that I don't know that are also passing through it. And yet there are other struggles that every one of us is passing through. Thank you for the application of your word. And I pray, Father, that in the midst of our pain, we will be able to look up to you and say, Father, my Father, I choose to worship you in the midst of my sorrow, in the midst of my anguish, in the midst of my suffering. I worship you. And I surrender to your purpose in all of this. For Lord, we know that as we're able to respond that way and will, that you are greatly pleased. Help us to remember that you loved us so much that you sent your Son who gave his life for us. And if you've given your Son... Will you not with him freely give us all things, even what we need right now in this hour? Thank you. Amen.